I want to dive in here. We're taking a little break over the next two weeks out of the Gospel of John as we look at Palm Sunday and the Easter um, story as we want to kind of focus in at what happened in these moments in the gospel. So we'll kind of pick that up on April 8th, if you will. But I want you to invite, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21 if you have them. And if you don't, Michael said there's Bibles in the back as well. And I want to read about this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry. as what the people who believed in Jesus did from that day forward to follow the King into eternity. This is what it says in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Michael read this at the beginning of our time together, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees which you see around me and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. As I've read that, I invite you to just pray. If you never do that, maybe this is the first time you've ever done that, just ask God a simple prayer. Say, God, would you speak to my heart this day? You pray that, and I will pray for us collectively. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you're good, that you're faithful. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this day of great celebration and also anticipation. These things have already happened historically, Father, but it's great reminders for the church to look at these things Jesus did in his life on earth and what they were for and what meaning they had. And Father, as we anticipate celebrating this week and reflecting on what Jesus came for, his death, his burial, his resurrection, And we celebrate hope that each one of us can have if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would be with us now, that you would speak to our hearts as only you can, and that you would change them and transform them by the power of your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, do me a favor. I want you to look at your palm. I want you, your your hand, yeah, not your palm branch, okay? It's Palm Sunday. I want you to look at, I want you to inspect your palm for a second. Humor me. You ever wonder why people of all colors, doesn't matter what color your skin is, why most people have the same light colored palms? Fun fact for you, it's melanin in our bodies. Melanin is a dark colored pigment that gives us our skin color. And colored people, people of darker color, have more melanin in their bodies as do white or Caucasian people. 
But what's interesting about your palm is that you have four layers of skin all over your body, except on your palm and the soles of your feet, you have five. And does anybody know what that fifth layer is called? Well, I do, because it's a sermon illustration. It's stratum lucidum. Everybody say that? Like if you get the luciderm skin lotion, now you know why. All right? So on this, this fifth layer, more protection and all the creatine deposits in these layer, in this fifth layer kind of prevents the melanin from showing through. And that gives us a lighter colored palm. Something that is fascinating to me that God unites all people of all tribes and all nations with this one commonality. I want you to do me another favor. I want you to, to look... Uh, I want you to take your palm, and I want, if you have a pen in front of you, many of you have one in the seat back pocket. I really want you to participate in this. I know some of you won't, but I want you to write your name on your palm. If you could write that name, your name, I'm going to write my name on my palm, because that's my name. Mine's in permanent marker. I was going to give everybody permanent markers, but we have kids in here first, and that would have been a disaster. Write it in pen if you have a marker, and even if you want to do it later today. And again, I really hope that you participate. It's not going to kill you. There's not going to be transference of ink. Remember, stratum lucidum protects you, okay? All right, you can even write it on the bottom of your soldier foot. But I want, you to, I want you to write your name, and I want you to look at it. Everyone look at your name. Look at your name. This is like, I want you to stare at This is everything about you. Everything that makes you, you is written there. All of your life experiences, all of your disappointments, this is the name your parents gave you, this is the parents' name your parents probably shouted at you, and some of you would write your middle name right by it, because that's when you were really in trouble. But this is you. Everything up until now in your life, this is who you are. And I want you to look at that name, and I want you to think about what God might be thinking about this name right now. What does he think of this name? How does he look at you? What is he thinking about you in this very moment? All those scars, disappointments, all your hopes, all your fears. And I want you to think about this question for the entirety of our time together this morning. What is the greatest need written for that name on your hand? What is the greatest need that when you look at that name, what is that person's greatest need in your life? I want you to think about that, and we'll come back to that in a bit. You see, the people were no different back historically when this thing happened in Jerusalem. They're no different than you and I. They lived in this oppressive government, if you will. Now, we live in a free country, but we have all these things that concern us. They were in the streets of Jerusalem, waving palm branches with their palms in the air. They were anticipating, they were witnessing, they were watching what Jesus was doing when he rides in. And they were just like you and me, light-colored palms. And they were watching their king. Now, when we come to Palm Sunday, many of us want to know, what is that all about? We've heard the stories maybe all of our life, but maybe in the process, singing songs, hearing about it every Sunday we've come to church on Palm Sunday, and maybe just like wondering, like, what is the significance of this? Is it just another Bible story? You see, two times a year we break away from the text, as we've done in our series, and we look at these gospel texts at Christmas and Easter. Those are the two times where we want to dive in and remember what happened historically in the life and ministry of Jesus. 
And some of us are so familiar with this story that we just fly past the meaning. It's just like religious routine. And so today I want to explain the significance of every detail of what Jesus was really doing as he rode into town that day. And it has same significance for us today. And to do that, I have a simple acronym for you. Look at your other palm. Try to, you can write this on your other palm if you want. Some of us are probably right-handed and you wrote your name on your left. So write this on your right hand. We'll see if it turns out okay. This is the acronym I want to look at today. The P, prophecy fulfilled. The A, arrival of the king. L, lamb of God set apart. And M, Messiah misunderstood. With that, I want to dive into the Matthew text, and I chose it with purpose. You see, there are eight accounts in the Gospels that are mentioned in all four Gospels, just eight. We call Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptic Gospels. John is set apart. It's a little different than the rest, but there's eight accounts of Jesus' life that are written in all four. Palm Sunday text is one of them. So you know automatically, this has got to be important. All the scripture is important, but these are written in all the Gospels. And I picked Matthew, you'll see why in a second, with reason. You can go read about the other ones in Mark 11, 1 through 11, Luke 19, 28 through 40, and John 12, 12 through 19. And I'll reference parts of each today. But I want to tell the story of Palm Sunday with this first letter, P, prophecy fulfilled. You see, it's Passover time. Jesus is in Bethany. You find that in the John account. You can find his location of where he is when he is leading up to this moment. He's in Bethany, and you see there that they are dining at Lazarus' house. Now, Lazarus was who he raised from the dead, brother of Martha and Mary. And so there he sits on Saturday evening, if you will. Probably in a Jewish calendar, there's a discrepancy on what the true Sabbath was. But the day before, what we know is now Sunday, he sits there and he dines at their table. Now, I have a map here, an image of Bethany. You can see on the side, the far right there is Bethany, Bethpage, and then Jerusalem. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. It's not far. If you go west or if you go east here, it'd be about the Aztalan Fields Nursery. That's about two miles down County B. And if you go straight down County B or Lake Street and hit Rock Lake, it's about 2.3, almost two miles down to touch the water from here, this physical location where you are. And Jesus is there two miles away from Jerusalem. Now, somebody mentioned this this morning as we were talking. You always wonder through the Gospels, like, why does Jesus like, seem to escape at every right moment? His disciples did not want him to go back, if you remember the story in John. They did not want him to go near because the persecution and the hostility of the Pharisees was stirred up like crazy. And they knew if he was that close, they'd kill him. And so at this moment, he dines two miles away and then makes the trek to the Mount of Olives, Bethpage, and eventually lands in Jerusalem, two short miles away. He is close to Jerusalem at this right moment, just like his birth was in history, right in this perfect time. Now, why though, in light of that, does Jesus plan? He is in control here. We'll look at that as we look. Why does he plan this public demonstration? That's what he's doing in this story. This was the only time. Think about this. This is fascinating. This is the only time in his whole ministry where he planned a public demonstration. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is pretty private 
often healing people and he'll say, don't tell people who I am. Don't tell who did this. Of course, they run off like all of us would and they say, look what Jesus did. He's pretty private. He brings things back, sits in the background at the wedding of Cana. He sits in the background of all these things. He escapes from people who want to hurt him, kill him. And now he's planning this public demonstration, but why? Keep in mind here, there are about 2 million people in Jerusalem. That's what was like projected that was there in Jerusalem around that time. Again, it's Passover, so all the Jews are making their trek to the temple at Passover time. And remember, he's in control, but he's usually pretty private about things. But why now? Because the prophecy must be fulfilled. Look at Matthew 1, 1 in our verse, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, what we read in Zechariah 9.9. Prophecy must be fulfilled. He was obeying the word in Zechariah 9.9. He was being obedient in this prophecy coming to light. And it was a huge, big statement what Jesus was doing here. Huge statement. Here we see that the Savior King is to ride in on a donkey. A donkey. We've heard that before as you've listened to messages, I'm sure, on Palm Sunday. Not usually associated with kings, but it was the national royal animal of Jewish monarchs, if you will. But a horse, that would have been more symbolic of Roman Empire. And that's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to ride in on a horse. And here he is, fulfilling prophecy, riding in on a donkey. Now, Matthew's gospel, and this is what sets Matthew's version apart. It's different than the other three, because if you noticed as we read, it speaks of not one animal, but how many? Two. That wasn't by mistake, I don't think. A lot of scholars debate this. But I like what is seen here, and Zechariah also speaks in this language. Mainly because, I, I, I picked this one because I want, to see, I want to show you the discrepancy, and I want to use a second letter, P, prophecy fulfilled. The second letter, A, arrival of the king, to show you the second one there. That A will pop up any moment. This is the most unimaginable statement of what he could ride in on as a king. Not a horse, not even, listen to this, not even a male donkey, or a mule. But this is the picture that Matthew gives a nursing colt by his mother. That's what Matthew's account speaks of two animals. And Jesus says again, as if not to like misunderstand, he said to his disciples, Go and get them, plural. This is the picture of Jesus riding in on a mama with a nursing colt. Now, he's not riding both of them, straddling them like some circus act, but he is riding, if you will, this entry, but it's symbolic. It's the most unimaginable way, just like Jesus' birth, that he could have made an arrival. He's saying something. The donkey was a symbol of peace. He's saying something. But it also shows something else, that the complete control that can only come from a sovereign king the complete control that he had over all creation. Not only to ride a young colt that had never been ridden, and that's what you have to think about. In those days, these animals, much like if you have a horse or colt or stallion now, it had never been ridden. It had never had somebody on it. And here's this young colt, and Jesus is riding it for the first time, and he has complete control over it and the retrieving of it. Look at Matthew 21, 3 through 6 again. He says, 
Go into the village in front of you. Immediately, he's telling his disciples, you'll find a donkey tied and colt with her. Untie them. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. I want to skip down to verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Picture time. Can you imagine right now, just imagine it, if I sent any one of you and I said, you go to that European car dealership, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the showroom, and I want you to tell them to hand you the keys to the red Ferrari because Pastor Craig needs it. (laughs) And they give them to you with no question, and they say, have fun. Can you imagine? This is what Jesus tells his disciples to do. I want you to go, and you're going to find little young Colt and his mama, and, and they're and they're people's animals. This is like livelihood. They're their work animals. These are possessions. They're expensive. I want you to go and get them, untie them, and if they ask you anything about it, just say the Lord needs them. Just as silly as Pastor Craig needs that red Ferrari. And he gives them. They say, fine. Jesus is in control of this complete situation. He's in charge of everything, so much so that people, not even knowing, give up their possessions. Such is the narrative of the scriptures. If you look at Paul's life and the gospels, and the apostle Paul experienced this often, even as he was blinded on the Damascus road and converted and saved, and all those visions of, this is what I want you to do, go and there'll be this man, and all through the book of Acts, Jesus is in control of every detail. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that they brought the donkey and the colt and put them their cloak, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now what's the significance of this? Cloaks on the road or cloaks on the donkey was a sign of homage to the king. They often did that when when royalty rode in and they would lay them down. Palm branches, cloaks spread all around, surrendering, bowing, if you will, to the king. And they wave palm branches. What's the significance there in the John account? It actually says palm branches. So they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. See, the date palm is a fruit tree in the Middle East, and the ancient tradition is that it was mentioned many times as a symbol for justice and good. In fact, people would wave them or bring them as they greeted or honored leaders or victors of Olympic competitions, whatever it was. People were greeted with palm branches. It was known in society that that was a way to honor and greet people. And so Jesus rides in and they greet him in this way. Now what's interesting as well is if you look back to Leviticus 23, palm branches are also associated with the Feast of Booths. And that festival in Old Testament practice was a festival that kind of signified the coming of a kingdom. Which is why in the Luke account they shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he is there as king, a arrival of the king, but not the one they thought. See, that's the difference, which we'll get more to when we get to the letter M. But I want you to see the significance and timing of what Jesus is doing here. Our third letter, L, Lamb of God set apart. You see, it's Passover. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The timing of this event is extremely remarkable as was his birth. Passover will be on Thursday. Jesus is sitting, reclining at the table with Mary and Martha and Lazarus on Saturday. Passover is coming on Thursday. 
Jesus rides in then on Sunday, five days before. Do you think this is a coincidence? What is Passover? Look with me at Exodus 12, 1 through 6, when it describes what the Lord established in the Old Testament after Moses went to the Pharaoh, says, let my people go, all the plagues come, and this is the judgment that the Lord puts over Egypt. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he or his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, either animal, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now it's about to go on and say what the significance, and I'll explain that, of painting the blood on the doorpost, but they were to select the lamb on the 10th day, but they actually didn't kill it until the 14th day between then and the 15th day, twilight. So they held on to it for four days. Jesus rides in on Sunday and then has four more days before the night that he'll sit around the table in the upper room and celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Now we know in the Old Testament when God said that he would he instructed the Israelites, he said, take that lamb and I want you to take its blood and I want you to spread it on the doorposts and he would pass over them. God was executing judgment on the Egyptians and he said, if you paint this blood over the doorposts, I will pass over you, essentially saving you, sparing them from judgment. So Jesus rides in on the 10th day of Passover when the children of Israel were told to get a spotless lamb and set it apart. It was lamb selection day. God was about to execute judgment over sin, which is why, as Steve said in his prayer, that Jesus wept in an account over Jerusalem because he knew what was coming, and people just didn't get it. And so here is lamb selection day, the timing perfect, Jesus knew that when the Jesus leaders, and this is why the public demonstration, he knew at this moment his time had finally come all through the rest of the Gospels. He says, my time has not yet come. But this, his time had come. And he knew that at this moment, at Passover, with all the chaos in the city, with all the persecution and all the offenses rising, that if his Jewish leaders saw this, they surely would kill him. And he had to be destroyed. We see that in John 12, verse 19. The Pharisees are talking here. And they say, he, you and I are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This was the time that they had to get at him. And so it's on the 14th day, Thursday, the day of unleavened bread. In Luke 22, 7, you see this. And you can put all these gospel texts together to make this all work consistently. That Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples sharing the meal. And between that moment, think about it, the 14th and 15th day, twilight, is when his arrest and the beatings and the trial begin for this perfect lamb. Jesus is the lamb. That's why he says to his disciples, take my body, and he taught this earlier, and eat, drink of my blood. He says in Luke 22 in that account, and it's remarkable what he's doing here, he says, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This was the one, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This was the last time. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to be buried. He knew he'd rise again. This is the last Passover meal. Once and for all, say, if you look at the tree, the cross, God will pass over. If you place your faith in Jesus, and he knows it, he knows what's about to take place. He eats this meal and is about to become the final perfect lamb, sacrificed for sin, the substitute, so that in him, God would pass over us in judgment, the lamb of God set apart. Prophecy fulfilled, arrival of the king, lamb of God set apart, and finally the fourth letter, he was the Messiah, misunderstood. People thought Jesus was coming to deliver them from political oppression. You get that sense historically, you get that sense as they came in, they wanted him to arrive differently. They were wanting them to save us now. That's what Hosanna is, save us now. That's what the translation is, save us, Lord, save us now. And Psalm 118 references, and you can read about that later today, were being made here at this time in Passover. Psalm 118, a long psalm, a direct messianic psalm. And they wanted him, though, to ride in on that horse. They were so focused, many of us, so focused on earthly kingdom. You and I are so consumed with our political climate and our healthcare look and our economic structures. We're so consumed with physical. And Jesus is so about the spiritual kingdom. He's changing things. They wanted a political revolution. They wanted him on the horse. They wanted the Roman horse and the sword swinging. They wanted him to come overthrow the Roman Empire. They were so focused on an earthly kingdom, and they miss it. The Jews still, this is the the thing you marvel at, they still do not recognize Jesus, even some to this day, as their king. Which begs the question, what caused such spiritual blindness? For one thing, their religious leaders, the Pharisees, had robbed them of truth, of God's word, and substituted it for man-made religion. You find in John 11 that they're looking at each other in this way, and those verses will be up there. They were only concerned with themselves as they talked amongst themselves. They were only concerned about themselves, essentially saying, there is no king to us but Caesar. That's not in the text, but that's what they were saying. And they missed it, why he came, what he was there to do. He was there that he might actually, ironically, fulfill their law. And he comes to die for sin and death once and for all, their sin, and they miss it completely. They misunderstand. And I don't want us to misunderstand in that same way. And so what I want to do is I want to take us through this acronym again. What is this? Oh yeah, prophecy fulfilled, arrival of the king, lamb of God, Messiah misunderstood. That's super clever, Pastor Craig, but what does it mean for me by way of application? For one, the prophecy fulfilled, all that God spoke came to be. Think about your life. What God said he will do, he will do. This includes his promises to us to provide for you, Maybe some of you are doubting that in ways that I don't even understand right now. With different ways, will God provide for what I need? For sufficient grace, maybe some of you need a lot of that, all of us do. To sanctify us, maybe some of you are walking through spiritually and you keep tripping over yourself. God promised to sanctify us, 
to change us into the image of his son. He promises to bring us home to himself, to give us an eternal mindset. He promises to keep us. Many of us fear in, our, in its poor theology that we can lose our salvation. If it's genuine and real, you cannot. He promises to keep us. He promises to bear fruit in us. Some of us look at our lives and we're like, what, what am I doing all the time? Why am, why am I not more patient? Why am I not more gentle? Why am I not more loving? Why am I not? God promises he'll do that in the believer's life by the Spirit to give us joy and peace. Maybe some of you are struggling right now with depression and just like in the lowest of low moments with whatever God has brought into your life and he promises to give you by Spirit joy and peace and he promises to strengthen us All of those things, what God said he will do, he will do. So don't doubt that. Arrival of the king. What does that mean for me? Jesus is king. That should mean everything for us. He rules over all things. Will we desire to live in that kind of kingdom where he controls? Look at the details of this story. And you and I have fears and anxieties of life. We wonder, where will this next paycheck come from? Where How will it pay all that I have that is collected on me right now? How can I do this thing that God is asking me to do? How can I get through this season? And Jesus is sovereign over all of that stuff. He tells his disciples to go get a donkey that he already knows is there with people that will let that donkey and coat go. He's in control of your life. Will you submit to him in his kingdom in that way? Throwing your cloaks off at him. I'm not just talking about Sundays here, folks. Every day taking your, all your desires and all your wants and dreams and throwing them off and casting them at the king's feet to honor and obey him with all that he has given you, your wealth, your resource, your time, your talents, all of it, to submit to him, to obey his commands, to follow where he leads, to trust in him, to submit to Jesus as a king. You don't just do that at Easter time. You do that every day. You have a decision. Who's going to be the king today? Lamb of God set apart. This is obvious to us. We have been provided a substitute for our sin. You and I can be forgiven and free to live in grace. We've talked about this even in recent weeks. You and I sometimes forget that we have a Savior who has paid an ultimate eternal price once and for all. And you and I don't have to live in this like we need to continue to try to atone, continue to try to please, continue to try to live out of our own self-righteousness. That is the like downfall of the believer to continue to think that he needs to pay for something that's already been paid for. He's a substitute. We're free. But will you take hold of that gift and walk in grace? For those of us in Christ, we know we have been forgiven and freed. The debt is paid for those who haven't. Have you set the Lamb of God apart for yourself? Have you trusted in Christ for your sin? Have you repented and trusted in him? Have you done that? You can respond in that way even this day. And the fourth one, Messiah misunderstood. I don't want you to misunderstand what Jesus did here and who he is Friends, we've been given a Savior. Hosanna. Save us now. But I'll challenge all of us to save us from what? To save us from government? We read the news. We watch the news. We see the news. We hear it tweeted about, watch it tweeted about, see all these things about the demise of our country and protests and all. Save us from what? People think 
gun control is the answer, especially in our climate now. People think all these answers, different presidency, a different democracy, whatever it is, save us from what? Are you confused too that Jesus wants to save you not from that stuff, but something far greater from the punishment of death and sin? He doesn't want to save us for our healthcare system. Yeah, for our healthcare. Trust me, Carrie and I know the healthcare system. We live in this. Like, save us from, like, if we just had a better healthcare system, save us from what? Jesus wants something so much greater than that. Maybe if I just had a different economic status, maybe if I could just get back on your feet and start to save more and put away more, the market would be more stable. And then many of us live in fear. Will I have enough for retirement? What if the market collapses? What if the banks like go under? What all? Save us from what? Jesus is king. He's in control of everything. Jesus doesn't want to save us from politics and government and healthcare and economics. He wants to save us from judgment, from death. And from true spiritual bankruptcy of being lost and separated from our creator forever. That's what he wants to save us from. Don't misunderstand that. People misunderstood the kind of Messiah Jesus would be. They believed Jesus' coming would be confrontation, that he would deliver them from suffering under Roman rule. But Jesus had come to bring greater salvation. He came not to set Israel free from Rome, but to free the world to know God. And you can still misunderstand that today. Many do. As simply a ticket to heaven. Palm Sunday. I'll go next week too and maybe a week after that. Jesus is for me. But he wants so much more. Look at Psalm 118, 19. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness. Is what it says in Psalm 118, 19. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. Such should be our life. Jesus came to give us his righteousness. He offers salvation so much deeper than forgiveness. And the devil wants us to believe that we are stuck, those who know Christ, in this endless cycle of sin, struggle, failure, repentance. Sin, struggle, failure, repentance. But Jesus actually does something entirely different when he comes in that day. He opens up the gate of righteousness for us. And he offers for us salvation from the broken walls, listen, of our depression, anxiety, our broken relationships, our broken bodies, all of our sin addictions and all of our struggles, he wants to bring heaven to earth and he does that in this moment. And the people raise their hands and they shout, Hosanna, save us now, Lord, not in the way that they thought, but desperately in the way we need. Look at your palm. Look at your palm with your name written there. In a few days, we're going to celebrate this as you look at that, that Jesus ends up taking nails in his palms for this name that's written on your hands. And I want to read a verse to you from the Old Testament. We were already in Isaiah 49, and I want to read this verse to you from verse 16 of what Steve could have gone on and read. And it says this, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Steve had kind of told us this, this Isaiah 49 was talking about the restoration of Israel. And it needed to be restored because its walls were crushed and they were broken down. And God speaks this to his people. He says, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He looks at each one of us as he did the children of Israel. And he says, listen, in Christ, this is how I see that name. Yes, your walls are crushed. Yes, you need to be rebuilt. 
Yes, you have some devastation in your life. Yes, you have some aches and pains in your body. Yes, you have failings. Yes, you have sin struggle. But this is how the Father sees us. I've engraved you in the palm of my hand. He says, I see your walls continually before me. I see all your struggles, your hurdles, all of those things. I see the ruin, all the garbage that you're walking through right now. All the ways that you're trying to pick up yourself and just take another step another day. He sees our broken lives and he sees us in this crumbled form and he says, I care. I care. I love. I know. I will. I'll build them back. That's the hope of Easter, friends. So stay faithful. Stay faithful. Our names are written on his palm. And if you don't have that name engraved in the Father's palm, you can respond in faith today. His prophetic, kingly, atoning, saving palm. That can be yours today, this promise of the Father. If you cry out in repentance and and plead with God for forgiveness and say, I want Jesus to be my king. This is who we are in Christ. This is how the Father sees us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. I thank you for the promise of Isaiah 49, 16, that our names are written on the palm of your hand. Father, that those who know Christ, their names are written in the book of life, never to be blotted out. Father, if there is one in this room that doesn't know you, as maybe they wrote their name, that they would look at that this moment and they would wonder about where they stand with Jesus. Father, where do they stand with you? Do they have that promise and surety? Have they truly submitted to their life, their life to the King? And Father, I pray as I pray every Sunday that if there's one in this room that's walked in there this way, that you would save them that your spirit would move in their heart in such a way that they would be able to celebrate salvation this day. Father, that all of us would look at our hands through the day, this Palm Sunday, and just worship in the fact that you care for us so deeply that you sent your son to ride in that day. We could shout Hosanna and that we have the security of that salvation. Father, as we sing as we close and worship, as we stand before the throne of God above, I pray that we lift our hands in worship, praising you. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be grateful that you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. John prophesied it this way, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. That is words of hope that we who trust in Christ take hold of. He will come back and take his people home. Amen. Have a blessed day and go in peace.